Welcome to the Happy Pill Podcast. I'm Ursula Yerdun. In each episode, you're going to hear me share my story while offering information and resources while you continue on your journey of surpassing the effects of abuse and depression. I'm going to be doing some interviews with some very special guests who are going to share their journey and processes because my way is not the only way of healing. And the more information we have, the more we can share with one another. My hope is that you find love, inspiration, and purpose for your life. So let's get started. friends. Thank you for coming back and listening. In this episode, I'm going to continue with the All the Feels series. And today's episode is going to be about unworthiness. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I get it. It is a difficult emotion to feel and experience. And out of all of the emotions, honestly, I don't know what feels worse, or if I can even classify which one feels heavier or worse than another. But I do know that feeling unworthy is one of the most challenging emotions I feel when it comes to depression. For me, it's like a never-ending story at times, and it's one that I have felt far too often. Unworthiness is the emotion of feeling like I don't belong anywhere. It always carries this heavy weight of not enough. Do you know what I mean? It's sitting on your shoulders. It's not being good enough, not beautiful enough, not strong enough. There's always this comparison that we have to ourselves and other people, which really lends to the unworthiness feeling. For me, it's like I wasn't lovable enough to be protected by my parents. I wasn't worthy enough of being nurtured the way a child needs to be nurtured. I wasn't this. I wasn't that. It's a cyclical pattern. For me, this emotion came at a very young age. And it wasn't just the abuse. It's more like the people who were raising me weren't aware enough of how to know to take care of me. You know, because if they did, then why would the abuse last so long? So the duration of the abuse adds to the feelings of unworthiness. It wasn't just this one-time moment. It spanned into two decades, and no one was, was aware enough to notice that anything was wrong with me. Not in elementary, where I was incredibly shy, or I would hide, or I didn't want anybody to touch me. No one knew, and how could I honestly tell anybody when I didn't even know what it was? I just thought abuse was a form of parenting. Being raised outside of Calgary didn't help me either because living in the country, there was no access to anything. My closest friend, Michael, um, lived a few kilometers away from me. And to ride my little tiny bike all the way to his house to play ball hockey in his basement would take me almost an hour for me to get there. My other friends, well, I couldn't even see their home from where I lived. So it was incredibly lonely in those formative years of my life. When we moved into Calgary, I was around 11, and the unworthiness would follow me. It would carry me through into my junior high and senior high schools, even though I was making more friends. It was just like their lives seemed very different from my own. Like, I mean, was it because we were from a different country? I mean... That doesn't seem right to me, considering that I may may have been born in the Netherlands, but I live in Canada. Were we just oblivious to the different culture and the way that families did things? I mean, that's very possible. But here we start with a comparison already. 
When I was in school, even from my youngest years, I always participated in sports. It was a place that I could finally play for the first time. And it was so seldom while living out in the country that I don't recall any memories of it unless I was playing with like dinky little cars, you know, that's what we called them back then, in our tiny little square sandbox outside our house. Or like I said, going over to Michael's to play ball hockey, which is really rare. And in school, I could have friends. This is where I could build a connection through sports And it kept me away from home, which was always a bonus. But my family never, and I do mean never, came to any of the sporting events I ever participated in. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. It was always my teammates and their parents that drove to all the sporting events. It was my friends and their parents that took the opportunities to engage with their kids and support their kids and encourage their kids. I never had that. Not even when I begged. I was such a frequent guest at my teammates' homes because they were always the active ones and they would always call me Baby Animal. And if you recall Animal from The Muppets, you know that overly hyped up red-haired drummer (laughs) banging on his drum? Well, that was me. And that was also my nickname for a few years. It gave me fun. It gave me attention. And most of all, it made people laugh. And I loved that I could honestly make people laugh because that's how I felt loved. I felt like I had done something that was worthy of their attention and approval. Growing up, I loved playing volleyball, but I was better at, I was honestly better at basketball because of my height. I also loved playing goalie in any sport that needed a goalie. So maybe that was floor hockey or field hockey, soccer. It didn't matter. I excelled at them because I loved being the one who could make the save but it always resulted in my teammates and their parents asking me, where is your family? Don't your parents ever come to things? Are they coming to support you? Will they help out and drive this weekend? And my answer was always the same. No. I couldn't even explain it to the people because no matter how often I asked for my mom to attend, she wouldn't. There was always an excuse. My stepfather was no different, but as often as he supported his son in their sporting events, he never came to anything of mine. So the unworthiness continued to grow, as did the negative thoughts. My friends were telling me and showing me how much their families would support them, but mine wouldn't. Again, even amid all these friendships, my loneliness and unworthiness continued. In junior high, my best friend Debbie accepted me. We were inseparable, and she became the most important person in my world. We did everything together, and I do mean quite literally, we did everything together. People always would say that, you know, wherever one of us was, the other one was really close behind, because, like, we were never parted. Debbie wasn't into sports as much as I was, but she was still my greatest friend. And I would walk to her house daily. Like, we would always hit up the candy store and try new forms of sugar, which, you know, (laughs) being a sugar addict doesn't really help, but I didn't know that at the time. And it was fun. It was just really fun to hang out with her. Do you remember ever hearing your parents or your grandparents talk about how they had to walk many miles to get to school or get groceries, yada, yada, yada? You know what I mean? Like, Like, that. it's just that saying. And you know what? That's what I did. I would walk many kilometers every day to pick up Debbie from her house. Then we would walk to school. Then I would do my practices after school and walk home again. It would make for incredibly long days, but Debbie always made it manageable and fun. 
when I finally got back like later that day, Debbie and I would actually still talk on the phone. <laughs> if you if you can believe it, it's one of the things we did. Maybe it's just a teenager thing. I don't know. I mean, what more could we possibly talk about, right? Like, you know, we were in classes together. We did some other uh, activities outside of school together and it didn't matter, right? Like we could still talk about anything and we would still laugh all the while working the shit out of my stepfather. So that actually kind of made me feel good. <laughs> He actually hated it so much that he only allowed me, if you can believe this, 10 minutes on the phone before saying, I'm waiting for a phone call. That would never happen. (laughs) Honestly, he wouldn't get that phone call and then he'd hang up on my friend. Like literally, he would just honestly, you know, at that point, we didn't have smartphones. We, you know, you actually had to pick up the receiver, you know, (laughs) so he would, you know, he literally hang it up, take it out of my hands and hang it up. And day in and day out, this was just my life. I hated my stepfather growing up. He made my life miserable while my mom did nothing about it. He would always be snooping around me and my room. He always had this curious aspect to him. It really annoyed the hell out of me. And one time my mother caught him catching glimpses of me and my teenage self through the crack at the bottom of the door. And, and she actually told this to me. She said, I gave him a good telling off. She said, if he did that again, I was going to leave him. I told him that. Really? Like, that, that was it. You, you told him off for peeking through the little crooks and crannies of my door at my teenage body. And you think that the best that you could do was to tell him off. And that was the best protection. Yeah, no, no. It, for me, that that's unacceptable. And that's, that's for me at 16, I was already thinking of suicide. I told my folks one day in the kitchen, what had happened to me as a little girl. And I apologize if some of you have already heard this before, But I told them about him, like, you know him. I remember sitting at the kitchen table and my stepdad was leaning against this old dishwashing machine that we'd had. That damn thing hadn't worked for years, but it was still there for him to lean on. With his arms crossed, he said, that's a bullshit. You're lying. (laughs) Like, I was stunned. I told him I wasn't lying, but it didn't matter because he didn't believe me. I looked over at my mom as she was leaning up against the countertop with her head held down and she didn't say anything. And that was her response. It was nothing. I mean, I can look back at it now and know that she did know and had some guilt as this former lover of hers. But once again, she failed to protect me against someone who was abusing me. She didn't know how to stand up to those kind of people. So not only was I not believed, I'm left to feel defenseless in a place that I had to live in, in an environment that I couldn't control. I couldn't move out yet because I was still in high school. So I just kept busy by working. My first real paying job was at McDonald's, if you can believe it. I was making $3.30 an hour. Yep, there's a little bit of ageism right there for myself. But you know what? I also kept doing sports and I stayed away as much as I possibly could. I'd only go home to have dinner and to sleep. When friends had asked me if I wanted to stay over for the night or go to a party or something, I would do what all kids do. You know, you ask your parents. But my parents always said yes. It was like, it's like literally these two had the inability to parent me. I could have gone down the road of drugs and alcohol and other kind of abusive lifestyles that sometimes happens to teenage kids because those were available to me. But you know what made me really sad? Is I actually wanted my mom on occasion to say no. I wanted to have some discipline where it was like, no, not tonight. You stay home and have dinner with the family. Is your homework done? 
no, you can't go out on the weekend because we're going to go camping. I just wanted something to show that they cared about me and my safety. When I was in high school, I developed a passion for theater and I still love, love theater. It was sad for me to leave sports because I wanted to actually go to university and try out for the volleyball team, but theater came into my world and I felt like I was at home. My teacher, Mr. Richard Pentelbury, helped change my life. He was the first one, the first person to tell me that I was good at something and that I could do well in theater. He was the first one to believe in me when I felt like no one else did, including myself. He had this with all his students, but this really mattered to me. Here was someone who was finally paying attention to me, who was supporting me and encouraging me to grow, and he did it with love and kindness. He became this role model of sort and a parental figure that I desperately needed as an angry teenager, because I was really angry. When I got into my first theatrical production, I had a background role in Romeo and Juliet. And I mean, honestly, which high school doesn't do Romeo and Juliet, right? A lot of the costumes that were used came from the Dutch Canadian club that my folks were a part of at the time. And they generously donated some of the costumes that they had worn for our production. And of course, my mom came because she actually wanted to see how the costumes turned out, considering that she had made a few of them, but not for how I performed or the fact that it was my first performance. In my second production, I played Mrs. Higgins in Pygmalion. That feels like a lot of peas all of a sudden. And in case you're not familiar with, uh, Pygmalion is the non-musical version of My Fair Lady. So I had this speaking role in that production, and we all had to use an English dialect. And because this show was important to me, I begged my mom to come. It was something I would actually later regret, because after the show, when friends and family would stick around to give congratulations to the actors out in the hallway, mine weren't there. Mom didn't bother sticking around to give me hugs or praise. Instead, when I got home, I actually received criticism. I got told how well the lead actress was and that my accent wasn't right. You know, and and of course that stung. And and I'm being compared to, to somebody else. I'm actually being compared to a friend of mine, you know, and that I wasn't good enough in her eyes. In my final production in high school, we performed Our Town. And... (laughs) Again, I have to say, what school doesn't perform our town? It's a wonderful piece of literature. Um, It's so fantastic and so full of characters. I loved it. And I landed the lead role of the narrator and our director, again, Mr. Richard Pendlebury, wanted me to be on stage the whole time. Even while the audience was piled in, you know, they were coming in and sitting down and I was on stage to greet them as he had directed me to. So the, the house lights were up and I could see the audience taking their seats and just as the lights were starting to go down... I saw my mom come in and take a seat at the back of the auditorium. Again, I had to beg for her to go to a show of mine because it was my final play and it meant a lot to me. So the night progressed and the show was a real hit. And as the actors were taking their bows on cue, you know, like we normally would. And then when I took my bow, I was rising up, back back up when I saw my mother step onto the stage to tell me that she had to go. Like... I have never seen this before. It was the only time I experienced that. I've never seen it in any other theatrical productions before, you know, but this was heartbreaking to me. And I mean, obviously it's clear that my mother doesn't know theater etiquette, right? Um, But I share these memories not to blame my family. And I need to be very clear about that because I've come a long way into understanding them. 
but to show the moments where my unworthiness continued to grow, how events continued to deepen my depression and my feelings of unworthiness. You've heard me talk about my catfishing experience in episode 8. And now you can see the progression of this emotion and how deeply rooted this feeling can be. I believe all of us will experience this emotion at some point in our life because there are just life issues that we all have to face. And no one is immune to feeling the spectrum of emotions. However, the awareness of the emotions is critical if we're going to move forward in our healing. Now, this is still a present issue for me, but I'm far more proactive about acknowledging the unworthiness because I've had ample time to heal, reflect, and understand. When people treat us as unworthy, it's a reflection of how they feel about themselves. Again, it's not about us. They are entirely unaware of how their emotions about themselves become reflected in others. I've spent decades in healing my connection with my mother. It's taken me 25 years, 25 years to get to the place of understanding with my mother that I no longer blame her. And the truth is, she just didn't know. And I'll get into this more into the blame game emotion. And honestly, this time I'm serious. I am getting to the the blame game, you know, uh, podcast. Like I said, I would. It is coming up. But the fact is, my mom didn't know any better, nor was she strong enough to fight off all the abusers. She was abused, and she grew up in a very similar climate that I did. Throughout these years, I've expressed every emotion I have felt towards my mom to my mom. I didn't hold back. And throughout the healing years, I've learned to become more gentle in that approach. Because the more I heal the more aware I become that these people who hurt children and other people were also hurt at some point in their lives. They did the best they could to love me the best way that they could. And I'm not saying I accept their behavior. I'm saying I understand it. I have clarity now that I, that I didn't know when I was younger. I have come to understand that my worth is not dependent on other people, whether they love me or they hate me. It's not in the criticism of my creations or the opinions of other people. My self-worth is wholly dependent on me. And I didn't realize this until recently. And what I mean by this is that I get the logic behind the statement that when we say we need to love ourselves because we can't love other people unless we love ourselves. So I understand that thought. But it's the emotional connection to genuinely knowing that I am worthy that breaks me of the unworthiness cycle. Sorry, I should say it breaks me free of the unworthiness cycle. It's about loving myself as I needed to be loved. I am loving myself the way I deserved to be loved. And sometimes, honestly, we have to teach ourselves that because others can't teach us that. So for all of you that are listening... If you feel unworthy because someone did or said something to you, know that it is not about you. Their angst is never about you. They need an outlet to release their emotions. So choose not to be that outlet if you can. If you can get away from it, do it. Be safe. Be secure. Be somewhere that you can be loved and supported. Then slowly begin to change your thought patterns and your feelings because Thoughts tend to feed the feelings. And here are some of these these quotes that you may have heard, you know, what you think about, you bring about. 
You ever hear that saying? Or, your thoughts become things. Be mindful of your thoughts, as quoted many times in Star Wars. People, Star Wars, we have to love Star Wars because I absolutely love Star Wars. Okay, <laughs> so that's just my little tangent. Or, this is something that Abraham Hicks says. A belief is a repeated thought pattern. And if you don't know about Abraham Hicks, I'm going to post a link to my, into my blog. I believed I was unworthy because of the many actions taken against me. Then, those actions became my thoughts and feelings that I must be unworthy because of how I was raised. So, my thoughts increased the feelings of unworthiness until the healing came in and I recognized, wait a minute, well, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right at all. Feeling unworthy never feels good. And I, I want to feel good. I love feeling good. I did, I really do. Like, you know, when you get sick and then, you know, you, you take your time off and you rest and, and you get better. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I feel good. I love feeling good. That's what I love. That's what I love. So now I change my thoughts because I know now that it was never about me. And the truth is I've always been worthy as a child of God, the universe, source energy, however you want to use it. If you believe in a higher power or not, you are worthy because you already exist. And because you exist, you're already worthy. That's the cycle. So what I personally do is I do affirmations that put me back on the path of being in alignment with who I am. And I'll say a very simple thing. I am worthy. And I'll say these at night. I'll say it when those heavy, unworthy emotions come up. And now I can feel when they're actually taking hold. If you're feeling unworthy, just start with something simple. Start with an affirmation. And if you don't think that maybe changing your thoughts is the way to go, how about just doing something that really feels good to you? Going for a bike ride, being out in nature, breathing, yoga, photography, writing, anything creative, moving your body, just getting up and exercising, you know, starting healthy, a healthy food regime, drink more water, taking a moment to do something that's going to make you feel good. Because when you can feel good, you also think good. When you think good, you feel good. Again, it's another cycle. And build yourself up slowly. Very tiny steps. Very, very tiny steps, right? Get out of any adverse situation you can if you are safe to do so, right? You are always meant to be worthy. You are it, it, it's in your divine nature to be worthy. So own it, friends. Own your worth. Own your value. And go from there. Small, gentle steps. And you will get there. Absolutely, you will get there. I thank you so much for listening to this, this shorter, smaller, simpler podcast episode. I cannot wait to share with you what I've got coming up next. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or someone you know is in immediate need of help, please contact your local authorities, distress center, or professional care provider. If you'd like more information on this episode or other topics, go to my website, UrsulaYou'reDone.com.